Welcome to Interviews. My name is Laurent Autain. I'm a business coach on a quest to crack the entrepreneurship code. So I thought, why not talk to entrepreneurs and ask them the right questions? I make sure to alternate between a male and a female guest every week. I hope their answers will inspire you. This podcast is available on all your favorite platforms. If you enjoy it, there are three ways you can help me make it bigger. One, subscribe. Two, share your favorite episode on social media. Three, buy me a pizza. Blog on my website, laurentnotin.com slash podcast and click on the icon, buy me a pizza. Interviews is brought to you by Social Prize, a marketing and communication agency operating remotely since 2005. Social Prize specializes in digital technologies and communication, web development, e-commerce, remote working, coaching, training, growth hacking. Log on their website, socialprize.me. Hi, thank you for joining Interviews. This week, I am with Jeff Morial, who co-founded Planet Subaru, your own dealership in 1998, and built it into one of the most successful privately held car dealerships in the United States. Jeff has also written his first book titled Profit Wise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing. And we'll talk about that. Hello, Jeff. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hello, good day. Glad to be with you. Cool. So let's start. Tell us a little bit about your journey. I mean, 1998, that's a long, long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about Joyce Carol Oates this morning. She's a novelist, and she said when she sat down to write a book, she actually starts with the very last line. So let me take a, a page from her book today and start from where... Okay where I'm sitting right now in Charlottesville, Virginia. The businesses we built are actually up in Boston, which is five or 600 miles north of Virginia for those who aren't uh, familiar with American geography because they don't, they're, they're not living in the United States. And we had originally uh, moved up there, my wife and I and my brother, co-founder John from Virginia in 98 to open our first business and we bought a bankrupt Subaru dealership. Mm. And people have since asked me, was, was there something about Subaru that appealed to us? And what appealed to us was it was a, a business that we were able to afford. <laughs> of course, so it I really, about the pride at the no, <laughs> I've, I've very much come to appreciate the engineering and the quality of the products we sell. It's a great company. It's great, great relationship. Um, that they have with the people that that sell their products and also with their customers. But anyway, to get, get back on track. So we would later open up businesses, additional uh, automotive businesses. And we also got into real estate insurance, some cellular tower infrastructure organically. Generally, we didn't go looking so much for those businesses. They, they almost kind of came to us and, mm. and we seized the opportunity. I'll make an observation here that so much of business is just kind of being in the flow in, in being able to, to uh, see an opportunity as it arises. And, and once you're established, those, those opportunities come a lot more easily. It's, it's hard to get in the game once you're in it. It's, it's a kind of a different, different situation. So in any case, 
about 15 years of business building was enough to, to wear me out because I, I put a lot in, probably too much in. And within a few years after that burnout, my wife and I moved back to our native Virginia. Fortunately, the team we built to, uh, to operate the businesses over the years is able to do it without us. So we retain ownership, but, but I'm involved more as a coach now than the quarterback on the field taking the hits. Nice. Well, this is, this is where you wanted to go, right? I mean, I do. It was, it was uh, you know, it's funny. Let me, let me invoke the quote from another novelist, E.L. Doctorow, Ed Doctorow, who happens to be a friend of Joyce Carol Oates. And he talked about writing a novel, comparing it to driving in the rain at night. Mm. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. And that's pretty much how we started. I don't know that we were super clear on our goals or where we thought we'd end up. We just, we knew maybe the short term that we wanted to be in business and that we didn't want to spend our lives working for other people. That it was just going to be best for us if we were, had a little more control over our destiny and then things kind of unfolded from there. Right. Yeah. I was about to ask you, why did you become an entrepreneur? Because, you know, you could have gone into a job plus become an entrepreneur with your brother, which is part of the own of your, of your own family. That's another extra difficulty maybe, or is it? Yeah, yeah, I think for both of us, you know, everybody has their own reasons, but we grew up under very modest circumstances in a rural part of Virginia. And, and I'll speak for myself now, because I think John probably thinks about it the same way I do, but, but I want to speak for him that, that it, it just, that kind of scarcity just grew really tiresome. And, mm. and we were young and, and maybe not fully developed uh, <laughs> reflective at that time. So we said, well, well, how can we, how can we increase our financial abundance? And, and that was about as far as we thought about it. We did work, both of us, for other people for some years. And it mm. took us that time to discover that, that we probably weren't cut out for that. And I think some people it, it will discover that over a period of time that it just makes more sense for them to work for somebody else. And I, I don't, I don't criticize people who never open a business at all. I, I think it, it's, it's the right choice for a lot of people because there are a lot of costs and responsibilities to, to being an entrepreneur. They're not for everybody. And for the people that, that aren't well suited to it, it, it's very likely that they won't do well at it and they'll end up worse than if they had just, you know, stayed in a job working for somebody because that's where they end up back anyway after their business fails. So mm. in any case, in terms of the relationship with my brother, my brother and I always got along pretty well. And and we both have this shared passion for, for business and for cars too, which dates way back to the little toys we used to play with as boys. And so we started looking for dealerships in a very simple way. There was a publication called Automotive News, still is. And in the back, there's classified ads and people who want to sell their, their businesses, list their businesses there and, and take phone calls or letters from, from interested parties. And that was me. I, I think that illustrates, I just want to make an observation, I think is very important for the entrepreneurs in your audience, the people who are thinking about going into business, that one of the things I think has been central to our success is just taking that small step every day to move us closer. Right. I don't know how to make a quick buck. I, I, I really envy those people that, that start a company and three years later sell it for a billion dollars. There aren't many of those. I think no. it's, it's probably more accidental than anything for those people. But, but we, we don't know how to do that. We, we, mm. do, we know how to make slow bucks and we know how to make quite a few of them. 
it just takes us a while. And the reason it takes us a while is because we just take, take small incremental steps every day to move us towards our goals. And it, it started our journey towards opening up a business. It was simply making phone calls in the classified section of the automotive news. Mm. It's interesting what you said. One of my guests um, actually said that those people you were talking about would make become rich super fast. They're more the exceptions. <laughs> oh, the sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you read about them. There's actually a term for that. I think it's called the survivorship bias or something. I mean, you read in the paper about the people yes. who did well. You don't read about all those those people that are living in the in the. No the back seat of their cars because their their dot com business didn't go anywhere and there are a mm. lot of those you know? yeah so let's talk a little bit about your your business because you call it the undealership so let's tell me a little bit about about that well what does this idea come from i think it's a good idea for businesses to open with a clear idea about how they're going to differentiate themselves from the competition mm. and that, that vision we understood very early on that how are we going to be, how are we going to be successful with so much competition already existing? There were already six or seven Subaru dealerships in the Boston metropolitan area at the time we opened that dealership. And, and by the time you add all the Toyota dealerships and the Lexus dealerships and the Audi dealerships and Honda dealerships, there's, there's probably 200 car dealerships just franchised in the Boston metropolitan area alone, never mind all the used car dealerships. There's a lot of competition. So we saw that the, the car business, and I don't know if it's the same case internationally, but certainly in the United States, it's, it's known for very customer unfriendly practices. <laughs> and the operations of the business are designed to extract the maximum amount of profit from the customer at mm. every interval. Right. And, and so we said, all right, well, if we can, if we can reverse this model, instead of trying to hunt customers, we can shear them like sheep, if you will. Like if we just make a little bit at every transaction, it will take us more transactions to earn a living, but we're going to build a much more durable business. Hmm. So it might take Planet Subaru or Planet Jeep or other dealership. It might take us four or five sales, vehicle sales to earn the same amount of money that another dealership can generate on a single sale. But the thing is, is that those people that buy cars from us enjoy the experience so much and they know they're getting a great value that they'll come back and we make it up in volume. So that's one mm. aspect of it. There's, there's also other things that are really important to us and, and we can talk about this maybe later in the podcast. We've, we've been very successful attracting people to the business who have traditionally been unrepresented in the, in the uh, team pool. So what I mean by the people actually doing the work for us, our team members, very few women in car, car businesses, for instance. And if you think about, you know, if women constitute approximately 50% of the population. So if a business is hiring only men, they're missing out on a ton of potential talent. And mm -hmm. so we found that uh, we have several practices we use to attract women and retain them as part of our team. And, and they've been very successful, some of our highest performers. And, and also our customers really respond favorably to that because they, they see the efforts that we've made and, and they want to be a part of a company that shares their values. So are you saying that companies should put the customers at the center of everything? Because that's what <laughs> I read I read between it's, the lines. <laughs> it's, it's radical, I know. But wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a cliche, but the thing is, is that businesses, you know, you think about some, some guy schleps to work and 
And it's just kind of natural that the last thing on his mind is what's the value to the customer. Mm. He's thinking, what do I have to do to get promoted or not get fired? Or what do I have to do to make more money for the business or whatever it is? It's, it's very difficult to, to create a culture in a company that really obsesses with the customer experience and not all the other politics that go on inside mm. that human institution. How, how do you do that? Because when I think about car dealership in the USA, I see the cliche from the movies, these very pushy salespeople who don't really care about anything else than what you're saying, you know, themselves and the money they're going to make. How do you build this such a culture where you put the customers at the center of everything that you do? The reason why there are so many books written on on healthy cultures, I think, is because there isn't you know a simple formula for doing it. I, I think mm -hmm. about a culture as a wall, a brick wall, if you will, that has, let's say, a thousand bricks in it, mm. and any single one of the bricks has no magic impact. I mean, if you get the, uh, you know, like say you you do a nice Christmas party or holiday party for your team every year and give them gifts and bonuses, that might be one brick. In, in your wall. But if everything else is broken in your company, your team isn't going to have a very good experience in there. You're going to have a hard time keeping your people. So that might be one thing that you would do. But I think more importantly, it involves starting at the top of a company. And, and fortunately, my brother and I have always had an ambition that was greater than just making money in the short term. We really do have a pro-social view of things that we want the people that are on our team to succeed and, and we're going to hang on to them. So they become part of our family and, and we, we have emotional connections to them and they're not just labor, if you right. will, you know, just yeah. another expense on the financial statement. So, so that's, that's another thing I want to point out maybe, and we can get into this or not in greater detail there are things you can do around your hiring too to make sure you're bringing in the right people because cultures are, are living things. They're organic. And mm. if you bring in a toxic, poisonous person, it doesn't take a lot of poison to really screw up a culture. So we're very particular about the people that we bring in and, and we have practices. We generally bring in all of our people in entry-level positions. It'd be very unusual that we would hire someone to a management level position from the outside because a person a management level position has a lot of authority and can screw things up really quickly mm. and if we're promoting our own people we've already groomed them in our particular way of seeing things and and maybe more importantly we've had that long track record of observation where we see here's here's the, the kind of decisions this person makes when they're stressed out when they're tired, we see how they get to interact with their other colleagues. We see if they just naturally attract the respect of their colleagues. And, mm. and so we have a really nice long wheelbase when we promote from within. So there'd be another brick in this wall of culture that I'm talking about. And, and maybe over the course of the podcast, there will be some other things that, that, will, that will be appropriate to illustrate how all the, all the million little ways we do that. So what you're saying is that if you want to, put, to think about your customers first, you should think about your, your, your team. It's a good place to start. I don't mm -hmm. know if, I would, if I'd be comfortable categorically saying that that's the number one thing to do, but I'd put it on the priority list. Mm -hmm. there, there, are, there probably isn't a single 
most important thing in terms of making sure your customers are first. I think it's a lot of different pieces, but I think it's absolutely crucial that you have a motivated, capable, personable, cuddly group of people taking care right. of your customers. Yeah. Because you can have great products and, and that might give you a, a, a competitive edge for a period of time. But ultimately, you need good people to develop the next line of products. You need good people to service and represent the products you have. So if you don't get that piece right, I don't, I don't think you're ever going to have a great company. And if I was to ask your staff what sort of leader you are, what would they say? I would hope that they would say that I don't use a lot of top-down management practices. Mm. My ideal is to lead from behind. And let me give you an example of that because, uh, you know, business book writers are, you know, famous for killing their readers with platitudes. So in every <laughs> occasion, I, I want to, instead of giving you general principles, I want to give you specific examples. And maybe one of those examples is in a meeting now, and I can't say I was always, uh, always able to do this, but now at 49 years old and in farther along on the entrepreneurial journey, I, I think I'm much better at this, that if we have a group, group of managers gathered to work out a problem, I'll generally let the team set the agenda and have the discussion. And, and I try not to intervene. And mm. one of the reasons why is because I'm probably the least knowledgeable about the matters that they're discussing, because I'm not in that particular business, whichever one of the, our businesses we're talking about. I'm not in that business every day, observing the interactions, observing the evolution of the industry. And, and I have a 30,000 foot level, which can be helpful, but, but they're obviously the most knowledgeable about the day-to-day -day operation. So I don't want to assert my particular opinions, which might be outdated relative to the current market conditions or whatever the situation is. And I find too, as, as the senior ranking official in any environment, people tend to put excessive influence or, or emphasis, I should say, on the words from that person, even though that person might not be the best qualified to render the opinions on the matter. Mm. So I like to listen very carefully to what everybody's saying. If I have an opinion that I don't think doesn't get represented, I don't assert it. I usually deliver it in the form of a question something along the lines of, well, did you consider the impact of this factor? Like, let's use a ex very concrete example right now as we're making our plans for the rest of 2021. We have to be considering this big economic stimulus package that is likely to pass and how that's going to ramp up our economy and what sectors are going to, to benefit from that additional stimulus. If I haven't heard that mentioned in a meeting, I'll wait till the end. And then I'll ask, Does any, has anyone thought about this? Do mm. we have a plan? Do we need a plan? Does anyone think it's going to have any impact? And, and what that allows, th this process that I just described, the beauty of it is that the team responsible for acting on the decisions in that room, they came up with those ideas. Mm. I'm not telling them, here's what you need to do. And they're all walking out of the room, scratching their heads saying, well, that does, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. That doesn't make any sense. But we couldn't tell him because he's the boss. Mm. So to, to wrap up this long answer, I guess what I'm trying to say is I like that idea of, of not, of a, of a business leader establishing a vision 
early on in the company and, and guarding that vision and making sure that vision continues to be represented in the decisions of the company, but, but leading from behind and, and making sure you, that my job is to make sure I have good, good people making good decisions. And, and then if, if I see an adjustment or something, then I'll, I'll introduce that gently. Right. That requires humility, I believe, because, you know, what you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, egos, sometimes they have big, big egos. Well, it's understandable because it's their baby. It's their passion. They think they know, they know better, but what you're saying is that, well, you should also uh, show a lot of humility. Yeah. Mark, Mark Twain has this lovely quote. He said that, that every person's life, every successful person's life, when looked at from the outside, actually, I'm sorry, when looked at from the inside, from the perspective of the successful person, looks like a series of failures. Mm. And I think he was relating, you know, despite his incredible success in his own life, he had had, he had fallen down a lot, but that's not what they write about in the paper. And I can't even begin to tell you how many failures I have had and how many things <laughs> I have tried that haven't worked out and the investments that I've made that have had terrible returns or, you know, enormously negative returns. I have made so many mistakes. And my response to that has been just observing that I often don't have the right answer. Mm. And there are times when I think I do, and I'm very passionate about that. Like, like I was talking about the vision for the company that we opened it with, that we're going to offer an experience in our retail businesses that's different than the typical car dealership. You're not going to dislodge that opinion from me. It's just a, it's a bedrock principle. But there are a lot of other things I've just come to realize I've just been wrong about. A lot of things. <laughs> and, and that's my response. Curiously, I've met people who have made even more mistakes than I have, and their particular response to that is to double down on mm. the, the fierceness of hanging on to their opinions. And there's probably some psychological thing going on there. But for mm. me, it's just a very practical thing. I've, I've made a lot of decisions. I've studied the results. I, I try to repeat the ones that have worked out and the large number of ones that have failed. I, I accept that, that I'm far from perfect. It's a great, it's a great lesson, and, and usually um, in that part of the podcast, I ask my guests about the key lessons they have learned along the way. But I believe yours, your lessons are in your book. So let's talk about about your book instead. All right, let's start with the. So I just want to restate the title because I think that, yes. that uh, much effort was invested in trying to boil down the essence of the book. So the title of the book is Profit Wise: How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing. And, and the two words in the title are very instructive. I'm trying to, to weave together two concepts that are not often seen together in business. And that is, how do you make money and, and do it wisely? And I don't just mean wisely like maximizing profits, but wisely with respect to considering all the other impacts of how you make that money. And the the desire to write this book came from, from my values as a person that I just didn't want to end my life whenever that comes and say, oh, okay, well, I made a bunch of money. Mm. Like that's just not enough. And in particularly since I've had a very good life and many investments have been made in me um, in terms of like, you think about the teachers, all the teachers that helped educate me that, that earned a lower income than they could have made in, in uh, another job. But 
they saw potential in me and the other students and they wanted to make sure that we succeeded. So I have responsibility to make sure that I pull along people in my weight to, to enjoy the same you know, version of the American dream that I have. So anyway, to come back to the, the main focus of the book, the idea is that you can make more money by thinking about the impacts of your business on other people. So a lot of entrepreneurs get into business and say, I want to make as much money as I can. And it's all about them. But what they don't realize is that unless other people are winning along with you, no one's going to want to help you win. Mm. And if your customers aren't loving your business, they're not going to go somewhere else because they don't care whether you win or not, because they're mm. not interested in the kind of car you drive or how big your house is or what your, what your uh, stock portfolio looks like. They're just interested in winning themselves. And they're happy to let you win too, but they need to win. And I think team members the same way. If you look at team, your team as labor, as an expense on your financial statement, instead of partners in your business, you're really missing out on the very important notion that you might be able to buy their body to show up. You can pay someone to appear in your business, mm. but you have to earn their best. And the way you earn their best is all the things we were talking about earlier in terms of creating that healthy culture and make sure they have, they have a choice about the people that are, they're going to be serving beside them when, when it comes time to hire new people. That they're earning a wage that's competitive, not necessarily more than they can make somewhere else, but certainly not less than they could make somewhere else. And all the other pieces, in terms of the community, what we found, we need all sorts of support from our community in many ways. Like when we expand, we need the government, governmental authorities to approve those expansions. We need the support of the, the organizations to encourage their, their members to do business with us because we support them. So there are a ton of stakeholders that depend on a business. And and all I'm saying in the book is that if you take care of all those other stakeholders at the same time that you're taking care of you, the stockholder, it will leave a better world as a legacy for you. And it's actually, I think, the most direct path to the bottom line. Right. So that's interesting because in the book, you share what you call profit-wise questions. And I picked, I picked up exactly that question. You know, one of one of your questions is who are the key stakeholders in your business? Are you satisfied with the way you balance their needs? And I wanted to ask you, can you explain why is it why is it important? I think you just did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just I mean, it's just part of being a human. You know, it's you know, when you work, and maybe it's the particular nature of of our business, but you know, our first business, the car dealerships. I was there every day, six and seven days a week with these mm. people building the business. And even as time went on and I got down to a more reasonable schedule, when, when they would lose a family member, I mean, I'd, I'd hold their hand and cry with them. I mean, it was like, you, know, you make these personal connections. So, so the thought of, of looking at these people, as I said before, as an expense on a financial statement, well, you need to do that because a business has to have reasonable payroll compensation levels. But at the same time, these are people and, and they need to earn a good living so that they can take care of their families and put their kids through college. And hopefully their kids can, can have more opportunities than, than what they had. And if you, if you have any heart at all, then 
I think it's going to be natural that you're going to want to take those people into account. But it might be, you know, I actually spend a little time talking about private equity in the book. And, and mm. I, I think that I don't want to tarnish the entire industry, but there's a lot of, a lot of ugly stuff that goes on in private equity. And, and one of the examples is when they buy established companies, load them up with debt, and then zombie them off into the future, uh, destined for bankruptcy. I think one of the one of the reasons that happens is that the people making those decisions, the, the the owners of the private equity firms, they don't see the fallout. They don't they don't hear the story of of the dad or the mom coming home and saying, "Guess what? I lost my job today." Mm. And in this rural Midwestern state, there aren't any other jobs. Like not that pay eighteen dollars an hour, twenty three dollars an hour, like. Those, those private equity owners, they, they don't see that. They don't hear those stories unless they go looking for them. So that's why I really love small business because I think the, the owners of small businesses, um, unless they're, they're completely, uh, completely isolated from the human experience, they, they're shoulder to shoulder with the people actually doing the work and the customers walking in the door and, and that tends to, to build empathy. Nice. Now I want to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's your, what's your dream for your, for your business? There was a time when my brother and I were, were interested in this kind of empire building thing. And I think that's probably just the testosterone induced <laughs> delusion <laughs> of, of being a young man Working in a car for a car dealership, sorry, and dealership. Yeah, yeah, and it might have been our industry too. Although I've met a lot of a lot of business owners and other businesses too that aren't aren't so different. But in, in any case, I think that at some point we had enough. You know, I talked about this notion of scarcity that drove our early efforts to to build businesses that would that would make a lot of money. And the businesses have exceeded, you know, accidentally, um, you know, far beyond the level that we had ever expected them to. And at some point, I don't know if there was a day, but there was some period in my life where I woke up and I realized, well, I, I don't have a mortgage on my home anymore. And I own my vehicles. And I, this is kind of enough. Like what, what else? Do, I don't need another house. I don't want to fly around in a helicopter. I, I, I have enough. So, so what's the next thing for me? And what I, what I alluded to earlier in terms of burning out, what I knew is I didn't want to keep doing the, the business building route. It's really a cool thing to do in your life, but I'd kind of done that. And I mean, how many businesses do you need? I, I'm not so in love with the process of, of being sued and dealing with, with the occasional crazy customer and all those, all those headaches that come from entrepreneurship that I want to just make it my whole life. Yeah. So, so I'm, this is a very long answer, but, but I'll, I'll wrap it up here soon. I think, so now I look at it, how within the context of our existing businesses, can we accomplish the goals that I lay out in the book that I'm talking about with you here mm -hmm. today, which is, which is to make sure that the people that we're responsible for our larger family in terms of the, the 130 team members that, that we employ and also the customers that, that depend on us to, to continue telling the truth and, and giving them a good value for their hard-earned money. How can I make sure that we take care of those people? And, and I think that's, that's, that's where my ambition is. If we can do that, then, then at the end of my life, um, you know, I, I can say that we will have used the, the abundance and the excess wealth produced by the businesses to serve other people 
um, and not just our own families. And that, that will be good for me. Would that be uh, the one recommendation you give to entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs? Can I have more than one? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the most, it's the most important. And it's the reason I wrote the book because I don't, I don't want, I mean, if all I've succeeded in doing is writing the book and much of the book, the, the large majority of it is, is devoted to the specifics of how you actually accomplish these things, how you make more money. Because I said, I didn't want to subject my readers to death by platitude. I, I've read too many of those business books. I want to describe exactly what mm. we do. Here's our secret sauce. Here's how we did it. Here are the steps we take. And, and actually make references to a lot of things that, that would never have fit in the book to my website, jeffmoral.com, where a lot of the documents and the process sheets and all the tools that we use every day are actually in, in, in on the website for people to use. But, but I think I would fail if all I did was increase the profits of the companies. I want people to increase their profits in a particular way. And that particular way is making sure that while they're doing it, they simultaneously improve their little corner of the world. They, they give more opportunities to members of their community for employment. They uh, have greater cash flow to support community organizations that, that need checks to operate, etc. Am I correct to say that all the profit from your book will be given to charities? Yes, that's right. Cool. And I, I want to point out too, one of the reasons, there are several reasons I did that, but one of them I like is that uh, I like this idea that, that people, while they're reading the book or visiting my website or, or listening to this podcast, they know that I, the, the advice that I'm giving and the recommendations I have, those aren't for sale. Like I, mm. I'm not doing this to make a dollar. If you want to buy a car from us, great. We'll be happy to sell you one. And if you want to buy, you know, if you have uh, cellular antennas that you need to put on a tower, we can help you with that. You can buy that kind of stuff from me, buy insurance from us, but, but you can't buy our passion. You can't buy our clarity or what we think is clarity anyway, if, if we can be generously described as, as sharing clarity here. Um, that's not for sale. So my show is called Interviews, Cracking the Entrepreneurship Code. Have you cracked the code? Yeah, I think I might have made a dent in it. I made a dent <laughs> in the code. And and I think the two, you know, one the themes, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it because we've we've definitely gone into great detail about that. The first thing is to make sure that you're considering the other stakeholders when you take care of of you, the stockholder. That that's mm. one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is is making sure that you're always closing the gap between where you are and where your dreams are or where your, your aspirations or intentions or, or goals are. And that's what I was referring to earlier when I think it's really important for, for the entrepreneurs in your audience. If, if they really believe that they want to own a business, then, then the question I would ask that person is, what are you doing today to move you a little closer? And I'm not saying a lot closer. I'm not saying you got to go write a check and buy a business because I think that if you try to do it too fast, you can make mistakes. But are you doing anything? Are you, are you educating yourself? Are you learning about something? Are you acquiring skills in the field that the business you want to open uh, in? You know, let me, let me rephrase that. Or if you want to be, if you want to do something in the construction industry, are you currently working in the construction industry, learning on someone else's dime? 
which is what I did. You know, I, I worked in a car dealership before I bought one. So the mistakes that I made working for that dealership, um, I didn't have to pay for those, mm. which was, was kind of nice. So I, I'd say those, those couple of things are, have been central to, to our success. And if, if you learn nothing else from this podcast, maybe those two things would linger for, for your audience. All right, I would love to continue this fantastic conversation, but unfortunately I have to cut it short. So last question, how can people contact you? So my website is jeffmoral.com and my last name is spelled M-O-R-R-I-L-L. I really love to hear from readers and I respond to every email. So if, if someone wants to take issue with what I have to say or, or has a different opinion or, or a question about something that, that didn't, that wasn't clear, I'm happy to to respond. And, and as I mentioned before, there are a lot of tools at that website, even if you can't afford to buy the book right now, because there was a time I remember in my life where I couldn't buy every book that I wanted to buy. But there are a lot of useful resources that support the mission of the book. Thank you, Jeff, very much for this conversation. Thank you, Laurent. And thank you all for listening. If you like this podcast, Please share your favorite episode on social media so we can inspire as many entrepreneurs as possible. See you next time. Bye-bye.